This is the Bible Line, a live radio call-in program with Dr. Carl Brogy. Dr. Brogy is the senior pastor of Community Bible Church of Beaufort, South Carolina. And for the next hour, he's available to answer your questions, providing biblical insight and wisdom for everyday Christian living. Our phone lines are open, and if you have a question, you may call 525-1859 locally or outside the immediate area, call toll-free 877-924-7980. Now let's join Dr. Carl Brogy. Study and show yourself approved of God as a workman who is not ashamed, handling accurately the word of truth. We welcome you to the Bible line. If you're joining us for the first time for the next hour, we'll be taking questions that you may have as you've been studying God's word. All you need to do is pick up the phone locally. The number is 525-1859. We have a toll-free number for our Internet listeners, and that's 877. The call letters WAGP 980. WAGP 980 is the 877 number. Or you can email us here directly into the studio. And if you're facing a challenge in your life and you'd like biblical counsel or a question your study of God's Word or the application of it, we can help. We'll do our best. The email address is TBL for the Bible line at WAGP.net. When you call, you can go on the air live, or if you're more comfortable, you can simply dictate your question. We're happy to receive it however you'd like to give it to us. Rick, let's go ahead and get started. Indeed, we've already got a live caller standing by. Let's go to them now. Thanks for holding. Good morning. You're on the Bible line. Yes, good morning. Uh, my name is Danielle, and are, are you going to the Ten Commandments, is what I heard you say on the program, that you were going to be going to the Ten Commandments? Through the Ten Commandments, no. Um, uh, well, yes, I, 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 you may have heard our associate pastor mention that in 2015, on Wednesday evenings, he uh, will be doing a series on the Ten Commandments. That's correct. Um, so um, that that's maybe what you heard. Mm-hmm. Okay, well, my question to you is, what about the Fourth Commandment? All right. So, you know, the question is, are all ten applicable today? And I would say yes. I do believe that the application of how some commandments apply may change, um, just like in the fifth commandment. And then I'll take it back to the fourth commandment. Of course, the, the Ten Commandments are listed in two places in the Torah. And uh, one of the central passages is, of course, Exodus chapter 20, along with Deuteronomy chapter 5. And, of course, in the fourth commandment, it says, Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath of the Lord your God. In it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter, your male or your female servant or your cattle or your, or your sojourner who stays with you. Why? Because in six days, six literal, by the way, 24-hour days is how Moses understood the creation, unlike many modern-day evangelicals. For in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth. So he gives us divine commentary in what he himself wrote in the chapters of Genesis. Uh, he created the heavens and the earth, the sea, and all that were in them, and he rested on the seventh day. Therefore, the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. The New Testament Sabbath is uh, Sunday. I don't like to necessarily use that term, Sabbath, because it becomes confusing. Uh, the term Sabbath is a command that God gave uh, to the nation of Israel. Uh, specifically, he commanded the Sabbath as it related to his people, Israel. And um, that's the specific statement that he makes in the book of Exodus when he reviews the Sabbath with God's people. He said, this is the covenant 
that I made between you and myself. And so the first mention of the Sabbath is in Genesis 2, and then it's not mentioned again for 2,500 years until Exodus chapter 20. And it's reiterated in Exodus 31 that it's a covenant that God made between Israel and his people. Uh, Christ, of course, is the Lord of the Sabbath. And so uh, as the Lord of the Sabbath, he can choose which day the church, the body of Christ that is distinct from Israel, which day they should observe. And so when you come under the new covenant, God's people are in their very early days of the church for evangelistic purposes, going into the synagogues, into the temple on the Sabbath day to fulfill the command that Jesus gave uh, to go to the house of Israel, but not simply to the house of Israel to go to all nations. But Paul reminds us in Romans 1 that the gospel was taken to the Jew first and then to the Gentile then to the Greek. And so you see in the early church, uh, God's people for evangelistic reasons going into the Sabbath uh, assembly places, the synagogues and sharing the gospel. But you also see the church meeting on the first day of the week. So some would say, and this is the argument that when you come into the New Testament, that only nine out of the 10 commandments are observed. And I suppose you could say that in a very broad sense, but I do believe that all 10 are still applicable today. Even the Sabbath day, not in terms of worshiping on Saturday, but the principle that God's people one in seven days out of the week are to gather for spiritual refreshment. And the model that God gave us in the early church was the first day of the week in honor of the resurrection. So every time Christ appears in his resurrected body, he doesn't appear on the seventh day. He appears on the first day. So every recorded uh, instance where it specified his coming to the disciples. Now, obviously, he appear, he was appearing more than that day, but he met on the first day of the week in those early resurrection appearances. And we know he met, obviously, on other days because uh, the Acts tells us that he walked on the earth for 40 days after his resurrection. And then, of course, on the 50th day, God, the Holy Spirit came. So uh, the application of a commandment may change, but the commandment doesn't change. And you see this, of course, in the fifth commandment. Uh, In the fuller account, let me read it out of uh, Exodus first. He said, honor your father and your mother, that your days may be prolonged in the land, which the Lord your God gives you. So again, real specific, um, you know, Obey, honor your dad and your mom that your days may be long in the land. If you go to the book of Deuteronomy chapter 5, there's a little fuller um, explanation and a promise that's attached to it. And Paul appeals to um, the Exodus, uh, the Deuteronomy account when he writes to the church at Ephesus. There it says, honor your father and your mother as the Lord your God has commanded you that your days may be prolonged that it may go well with you on the land which the Lord your God gives you. So it's a little broader, a little more specific um, than is recorded in Exodus. The Bible never contradicts itself. It only uh, complements itself. So both uh, acknowledge being prolonged in the land. Deuteronomy adds, um, and of course, it's a later time. It's a different occasion when Moses uh, reviews at the end of his life Um, what had happened in those 40 years in the book of Deuteronomy. And and he gives a more fuller version, not only that it may go well with you in the land, but that the quality of your life uh, will be uh, different uh, by acknowledging the fifth commandment. So when you come into the New Testament, Paul changes it a little bit. 
Um, is the fifth commandment still applicable? Yes, uh, but it's applicable in a different way. And so my point is, is I think you can build a parallel between uh, the Sabbath day. Yes, still a binding uh, command for God's people to meet one and seven, but no longer on Saturday and on Sunday. And you might expect that because God was under the new covenant setting a new arrangement where he was not working exclusively through Israel anymore, but he was working through the church, which is an international community. And so Paul tells us in Ephesians that God broke down the dividing wall between Jew and Gentile, and he made them one. Doesn't mean that he's done with Israel. He's not. In fact, um, it's very clear that he's going to culminate human history through the Jewish people. But in Ephesians 6, he says, obey your parents. In the Lord, for this is right, honor your father and your mother, which is the first commandment with a promise. Why? That it may be well with you, okay, and that you may live long on the earth. So he doesn't say in the land anymore, but on the earth. And so initially the commandment was given with a promise attached to it as it related to the land, uh, namely the land of Israel, because that's where God's people lived. But now he broadens it to the earth because God's people are all over the planet. Same commandment, different application. And I think you can say the same with the fourth commandment. We're not to worship on the seventh day of the week. We're to worship on the first day of the week. Same commandment, different application as given under the guidance of God, the Holy Spirit. Interestingly, when you come to the prophet Ezekiel, where he looks down the corridors of time to a future time, to the millennial reign of the Messiah, Uh, We will find, once again, God's people during the millennial reign of Christ, according to Ezekiel 36 and Isaiah 66, meeting on the seventh day of the week. Um, So God is going to have us become Sabbath worshipers once again during the millennium, which is uh, rather interesting. But uh, five resurrection appearances um, in the New Testament where Christ comes on the first day of the week, whether it's to Mary Magdalene or the other women or Peter or the Emmaus Road disciples or or Thomas, and uh, it's not by accident. Uh, because God is underscoring a very important principle. And so when you come to, you know, the book of Acts, uh, chapter 20, uh, you meet, you see the early church in verse seven of that chapter meeting on the first day of the week. And in first Corinthians 16, when Paul gives instructions as to uh, a collection that is to be taken, he says, when you gather in the first day of the week, Um, take this collection. So there's an assumption by the time you come to the epistles in the New Testament that that's how God's church is to worship. So does that make sense? We lost her, so that's all right. But I guess she hung up and just listened to the answer. All All right, let's go to the next question, Rick. We do have another live caller. Let's go to them now. Thanks for holding. Good morning. You're on the Bible line. Good morning, Pastor Brogy. Hi. Yep, thanks for calling. How can we help? My question is, a couple weeks ago, I was watching Jack Van Impey, and he's been talking about the threat of uh, ISIS and uh, these other uh, Islamic terrorist groups. Uh, He spoke about what's going on in uh, Britain and the overflow of uh, Muslims in that uh, area. And uh, he also talked about China, how they were trying to hide it, but you know, with their attacks, but ultimately they came out and admitted they had 10 million uh, Muslims in in China. Uh, He spoke of how, you know, certain Muslim leaders, one in particular, spoke uh, a while back in an interview with Christian Amanpour, 
about how their goal is to have the flag of Islam flying over uh, the, the White, White House. House. Right. Uh, mm-hmm. Talking about Sharia, et cetera. Yeah. My question is, is how do you feel about all of this? Uh, how big is the threat of ISIS and these other Islamic groups and coming to America and around the world? Well, I think it's a very real threat. I, I was in Ukraine just a couple of days ago, and I met with a uh, missionary who is also there from, who's based in London. And of course, I was asking him about uh, Sharia law as it uh, is practiced in England. It's not officially practiced, but there are basic neighborhoods in the greater London area where, in practice, they are exercising Sharia law amongst themselves, because they're virtually all Muslim neighborhoods. And of course, um, we see something that's happening in the Muslim community uh, at a prolific rate, and that is they're having kids, unlike a lot of evangelical Christians. And so, you know, we've kind of bought into the world's mentality that children really are not a blessing from God, and let's just have one or two or uh, but, you know, certainly not three or four or five or six or, you know, let's not be extreme here. And so Christians are not having nearly as many children as they once did, but Muslims are. They're having six, seven, eight, nine, and they're growing at a very, very rapid rate. And so in some of these Muslim countries of the world, the average age is not like in America, over 50. The average age is like 18, 19. 20, 23, depending on which Muslim country you're in. And so you talk about a young population that is going to become explosive in terms of size. Uh, even here in America, it's estimated that by 2025, that's about 11 years away, there'll be 50 million Muslims in America. Um, you know, I don't know if they're right, but that's, that's some of the demographics that you can read online in terms of what they're estimating for the American population. So this is a problem, you could, I suppose you could say, or it's a challenge, or it's an opportunity, or it's all three. And I think it's really all three, because there are Muslim people who are you know, open to the truth, and God brings them here for a reason. Um, you know, yesterday I sat on an airplane next to a Buddhist, and she's a physician in Thailand, and God placed her next to me to talk to her about Christ. And I was just reminded, you know, God keeps bringing these internationals to the United States of America to give us the opportunity to tell them about the Lord Jesus, because not every Muslim is a throat slitting Muslim, especially those in the West that are far more westernized. But when you come to other countries of the world, uh, many of them are very hardened towards the gospel, not all of them. Uh, but many of them are hardened towards the gospel. I have a friend who for the last 28 years, he's worked exclusively with Muslims. And uh, many of them are hardened, but then there are some that are very open, you know, to the gospel of God's son. So we need to, you know, look for those opportunities, but they mean business. And, you know, the threat is real. And, you know, just uh, early this morning uh, in Israel, uh, you know, some Americans were killed and they came into a Jewish synagogue and um, there were four Americans in there who were killed and uh, a couple of Israelis and a number who were injured. And they came in with uh, knives and a hatchet and a gun. Um, it's just terrible. And of course, they're doing this, you know, in response 
to that uh, Palestinian bus driver that was found hung. Uh, the Israeli government ruled it as a suicide, and it appears, based on the evidence, there's no other reason to take it differently. Um, but, you know, they want to, and they're turning it into an explosive situation there on the Temple Mount in Israel. So the threat is very real. The American government, you know, it was in the Wall Street Journal just a couple of days ago, has, uh, you know, instituted some new policies on our military bases all across America, uh, asking American service men and women uh, to even on their social pages to be very careful how they present themselves. They're suggesting that some of the military stickers that they're putting on their cars should be removed. This is our government speaking to our own Marines and Army and Air Force people just in the last week. Uh, why? Because they feel like the threat uh, is a very real threat to U.S. military by, you know, some of these Lone Ranger type ISIS people who want to come and kill folks. And so um, the Marine Corps commandant put out a statement last week that if they see anything that even looks a little bit suspicious, um, though you might not normally consider it suspicious, you should report it. So, yes, our government is concerned and the concern is real. Um, As Christians, we don't have to fear or quiver. Uh, We should, of course, be alert, but we should also see it as an opportunity to win some of these people to God's son. Anyway, good question. Let's go to somebody else who's waiting patiently, and let's see if we can respond. Indeed, we do have another live caller. Let's go to them now. Thanks for holding. Good morning. You're on the Bible line. Good morning, Rick. Welcome back, Pastor Brogy. Thank you. Um, Following up with a previous caller, in, in reading Jeremiah and Ezekiel, and their descriptions of God's wrath on Jerusalem and Israel and Judah during the uh, during the exile and all all of the horrible things that, that happened to them. And moving it forward to the 21st century, I, I can't help but think that we are going to experience God's wrath here. I, I think that to we're going to be taken to the proverbial woodshed by by a vengeful God, I, and I, I can't see any. I can't see any way out of it unless we have a total revival in this country. Um, you can't kill 56 million babies and not suffer repercussions. Hmm. You can't have a government that lies the way they do to the American people without without suffering some sort of punishment. And I'm, I, I think I'm right, but I, I would love to hear your opinion, sir. Well, I, I do believe that God continues uh, to deal with nations directly, that God's hand Uh, is in nations. Um, You know, blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord. Uh, Sin is a reproach to any people, any nation, the Bible warns. And so God can bless a nation, he can honor a nation, or God can reprove a nation. Many times uh, your own sin reproves you, Isaiah the prophet says. So God doesn't necessarily always have to step in. Uh, Sometimes he just allows the consequences of sin to play themselves out. So, yeah, we're, we're living in challenging days and we're seeing some things that are taking place in our world that God does not necessarily sanction, but in his sovereignty, he uses these things. You know, the Bible says God uses the wrath of man to praise him, even when Hitler was in power um, and he began to exterminate the Jewish people. Yeah, they fled. Uh, they, they looked for a place to go. They even came to the United States and, and by the boatloads, and they were turned away by our own government to our own shame. And, of course, when you 
Go to the Holocaust Museum in Washington, D.C. or Yad Vashem there in Jerusalem. You see some of the letters written by our own government to the Jewish people basically saying you were not welcomed. Um, so what did they do? Well, they fled Israel. And so, you know, there was 20, 25,000 people in Israel around 1900, as best we can tell. The first time we have any clear Democrat demographic was about 1875. So there's just a handful of Jewish people in the world. But under Hitler, um, God uses that evil man to accomplish ultimately his own purposes. So they go by the thousands. And, you know, there in May of 49, there's 600,000 Jews who are living in in Israel uh, when they are established as a nation. Uh, You see even, you know, uh, since then, that time, of course, now there's over 6 million Jews that are living there in the land. So, yes, I I don't think that we can, you know, blink and think, well, God's not going to do anything and he doesn't really care about our sin. He he does. Uh, But what we're seeing in America now is not unique to America. We may be leading the way, um, but it's certainly not unique to us. Wherever you go in the world now, you see the same antagonism towards God in the things of God and this growing lawlessness Uh, Whether it's through organizations like ISIS, as we were just discussing with the last caller, or the moral perversions that the nations of this world are normalizing and accepting and defending and writing laws in favor of, and uh, such that if you, you know, hold a position against what God calls evil, you're viewed as narrow-minded. And again, the stage is ultimately being set. Uh, through this lawlessness for the return of God's son, because whenever you have a lawless society, the people are, you know, have to give up freedoms. Um, And it makes it ripe for, you know, a one world leader to come on the scene uh, to deal with the lawlessness, because you need a strong centralized force to come up against it. Uh, So man intends things for evil. Uh, God intends things ultimately for good, namely to bring his son back and to to reign on David's throne. Anyway, it's a lot to think about. Let's go to the next caller, the next question. All right, very good. Uh, just uh, wanted to reiterate for some of our listeners who don't know, when you call in and um, uh, you ask a live question, we will mute the uh, volume down so that there's no cross-talking, and then we oftentimes will give opportunity afterwards. I think we had a listener earlier who called in and uh, was concerned that she didn't have an opportunity to interject. Yeah, yeah, we give folks an opportunity. You know, sometimes you get folks who start yelling at you and rather than hear their chatter, we turn the volume down initially till I respond. And if the person, unless they tell us they, they're going to hang up and listen, I'll say, does that make sense? You have a comment? And I give them a chance to respond, and I don't mind doing that. Mm. Uh, so anyway, you're, you're, you're welcome to respond in dialogue with me. Okay. Uh, let's go to the next uh, question that's been dictated. All right, we do have one. Our next caller would like to know if it is scriptural for a couple to be members of different churches. One spouse was saved quite a long time ago and attends one church. The other spouse was saved later on at a different church. So they each just keep attending their church separately. Does the Bible address this? Well, I think so, um, in the sense that God has an ordered structure, whether it's in the government or the church or the home. And God's Word teaches that the husband is the head of his wife, and they are a team. When God created Adam and Eve, uh, the wife is the husband's helper. She complements Uh, what, you know, the husband is called to do as he leads his home and his family. 
And so when you have two different people attending a different church, it really ultimately comes down to where the husband thinks they should go. Now, I I would put a qualifier on this. You're telling me that both are born-again Christians, and I'm assuming both are in a Bible-believing church, though you don't give that degree of specificity in the comment that you make. But let's just assume that's true. Both are Bible-believing Christians, and both are... Um, you know, attending a church where the Word of God is honored and the absolutes of the Christian faith are acknowledged. Uh, There may be minor secondary doctrinal differences, but not of the type that would, you know, take away the truth of the gospel. So with that given, uh, the the lady should really follow her husband's leadership because he's the spiritual leader. He's the head of the home. Now, if he's a wise man, he will value his wife's counsel and, He will listen carefully to what she has to say. He will weigh it carefully, but ultimately the decision is with him. The only scenario I can think biblically where you'd have, you know, two people going to do two different churches is if, um, you know, say the husband was going to a, a church that was apostate and did not acknowledge the truthfulness and the infallibility of God's word or the salvation by grace or some orthodox fundamental of the faith. And uh, he was going to, you know, a less than biblical church. Then his wife would need to be assuming she's born again in a church with Bible believing Christians. Uh, If you go to a church where say the pastor denies the infallibility of the Bible or the virgin conception or the substitutionary atonement of Christ or the bodily resurrection. And by the way, we have churches in this county that deny all of those things or some of those things, depending on which one you walk into. Um, But those churches would not be considered truly Christian churches. Now, there are secondary issues. There are good, godly Christian people who differ on the timing of events, say, for the return of Christ from heaven. Or there are good, godly people who affirm infant baptism, where, of course, the majority of God's people across the world affirm post-conversion baptism, but that's not a salvation issue. Um, and so with that, again, being said, is, uh, you know, if, if a church is biblical and has the gospel, then that's the church that the wife needs to go to with her husband. And the only exception is if he was not a believer or he was a rebellious believer and he was not attending a Bible-believing church because then you can't forsake your assembling together with the brethren. And God calls us to be in a Bible-believing church. That's a biblical principle. And there's no substitute for that. So that would be the only scenario where you could have two people going to do two different churches who are trying to obey what God says. Now, it might be that they're in ignorance and they think it's just fine, uh, but it really isn't because, it, you know, and the husband may say, well, you know, honey, if you want to go to that church, go. Um, that's not a wise husband. That's not, that's not a husband who really knows his Bible very well because they're called to serve as a team and they're to work together. And especially as they're raising children in their home, uh, they, they need to be on the same page and they need to be worshiping together as a family. And that's the model and picture God gives in his word uh, with parents and children, say, in Ephesians 6. There's an assumption there that the family is together and to divide them is very unwise. And so it's either done out of ignorance or or rebellion. Uh, There's not a lot of options as it comes down to this. Hmm. All right. Very good. 525-1859, toll free, 877-924-924. 7980, um, or you can always email us at tbl at net. 
Our next listener would like to know, what does Scripture say about alcoholism? Well, it doesn't use the term alcoholism. And I I, I can, as a pastor, be maybe a little reluctant to use that term simply because many times alcoholism is defined as a disease rather than really as a sin. And so we'll say, well, you know, he's an alcoholic, like it's some kind of gene that he inherited, some disease gene in his uh, personhood that made him that way, and therefore he's not really responsible for it. Now, it is true that alcohol can disease the body. It can, you know, pervert the mind and loosen the morals and rot the liver, all kinds of, you know, physical and psychological manifestations that it can bring. But ultimately, it is a moral issue, and that's how God describes it. And so he says, for instance, in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, do not be deceived, neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor homosexuals, nor thieves, nor the covetous, nor drunkards, um, nor revilers, nor swindlers shall inherit the kingdom of God. If it were purely a disease, then God could not hold man morally responsible. But God doesn't describe it as a disease. He describes it as a moral issue. Uh, And of course, he says, and such were some of you, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord our God and in the spirit of uh, Christ. And so again, in Galatians, Paul says, now the deeds of the flesh, referring to the sinful nature are evident. And then he gives a rather extensive list. And let me just read it to you here as I'm turning to it. The deeds of the flesh are evident, which are immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, outbursts of angers, disputes, factions, envyings. Then he says drunkenness and things like these of which I forewarn you, just as I have forewarned you that those who practice such things shall not inherit the kingdom of God. So Again, he's describing here a lifestyle that if this is a person's lifestyle, then they really have evidence that maybe they've never met Jesus Christ as their personal Lord and Savior. Because he will say just a few verses later that um, if we live by the Spirit, let us also walk by the Spirit. And that those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. So there's a new uh, attitude towards some of these sins when we are made alive and regenerated by God, the Holy Spirit. Now, that's not to say that people who have been enslaved to alcohol uh, through repeated abuse of that drug, uh, that's not to say that uh, they may not need some help e- either medically to get off of it uh, or uh, accountability to stay away from it. But again, if they've met Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior, God gives them that desire. Occasionally, you'll hear someone say, well, you know, I was a drunkard and living in the gutter, and I found Jesus as my Savior and never wanted to have another drink, just never wanted to have another drink. Can God do that? Well, God can do anything he wants. But I would not say that that is typical. Um, That would be like someone who's a fornicator or an adulterer, and and, uh, they get saved, and they said, I never had another sexual desire to be immoral. Well, you know, I doubt it. Um, It's possible, I suppose, but it's uh, not probable because you still have the sin nature. And that's why Paul warns in 
First Corinthians 10 and verse 12, let him who thinks he stands be careful lest he fall for no temptation is overtaken you, but such as is common to man. And so the temptations of this world that are common to man can come upon any Christian. And if we think that we're beyond those and we could never be tempted with another drink or to be immoral or whatever our background may have been before we met Jesus as our Lord and Savior, then, then, then you're tempting the devil to, to tempt you. Um, we live in a day where a lot of Christians, I think, are very foolish when it comes to alcohol and their view of it. And they try to justify it. And if you teach abstinence, you're just a stupid little ignorant fundamentalist and you're not enlightened. And uh, you should, uh, you know, allow people to have their wine and their beer. And look, I've got whole sermons on this. Uh, This is a big issue that uh, our own radio station has uh, faced here in the last year with the uh, Moody Bible Institute. And because of this, we left, we left Moody. Um, not totally yet, because we're in process uh, as a radio station in honoring our contractual agreements through the end of the year. Nothing will fundamentally change in terms of the speakers that you hear, but a lot has fundamentally changed in terms of um, you know, our relationship to them. So I'm going to read a letter. I've been wanting to do this, and this might just be a good opportunity in light of the fact that this question came in. Dear President Nyquist, he is the president of the Moody Bible Institute. Uh, it is with a deep sense of regret, and after many months of thoughts and prayers, a radio board that Community Bible Church, who's been entrusted with the stewardship of WAGP 88.7 FM, will formally break its tie with Moody Radio. We went on the air with Moody in December of 1988 as a low-powered 3,000-watt station. Over the years, by the grace of God, we've grown from 3,000 to 6,000 to 25,000 and now 100,000 watts with some promising new developments to possibly expand our radio presence even more. We have felt a part of the Moody family, have sent many students to Moody Bible Institute from our own church fellowship, and have recommended MBI to literally hundreds of Marine families who at one time or another were members of our church. I am sure you realize by now that the obvious reason for our formerly breaking with Moody Radio concerns your new policy about alcohol, tobacco, and gambling. I know that some people may view our position as, quote, legalistic, and is driven by rules. Unfortunately, many who want to honor the Lord and please him are labeled today as old-fashioned, untaught, and narrow-minded. Nonetheless, being one of the largest churches in the state of South Carolina and with radio presence in the East Coast through Search the Scriptures, we feel a responsibility to lead in a positive, Christ-centered way. And I have no doubt as the president of Moody, you feel the same way. I do not understand the tobacco issue in terms of moderation. I know some like R.C. Sproul, who have taken this position of moderation. He's influenced many in the young, restless, and reformed variety of Christianity to the same position. It seems more and more that in order to be reformed, like a Mark Driscoll, who, by the way, you know, talks about his having a martini and wine and all that. Now he's no longer a pastor because of the utter ruin that's come on his church. But it seems more and more that in order to be reformed or to be considered a cutting edge evangelical, one is practically required to drink and smoke, evidencing a new Christian liberty. With many of these new burgeoning church leaders, 
what, what many of these bur- new burgeoning church leaders do not hear is that R.C., Spurl, uh, whom I love and respect, now suffers from emphysema and is very limited in his capacity to travel and speak. In terms of alcohol, the pastors, teachers, and ministries that we broadcast, including Nancy Lee DeMoss, Dr. David Jeremiah, John MacArthur, Dr. Charles Stanley, Alistair Begg, Dr. Robert Jeffries, Dr. Jack Graham, Dr. Tony Evans, Dr. James Dobson, and Dennis Rainey will advocate abstinence from both alcohol and tobacco. They arrive at this position of abstinence in different ways, but they all end up in the same place. Even your own Dr. Erwin Lutzer, whom I deeply love and respect, when asked several months ago during his question and answer segment about Christians using alcohol in moderation, he came out against it. He thought it very unwise for Christians to use alcohol. To mention some of the more common reasons, I have many Christian teachers, pastors, and biblical scholars. I know many, excuse me, Christian teachers, pastors, and biblical scholars have argued for abstinence on the basis of abstaining from the appearance of evil, being careful not to cause a brother to stumble, and because they believe that in our culture, the use of alcohol does not glorify God. In addition, many great biblical scholars like J. Dwight Pentecost, John Walford, Norman Geiser, all who have been interviewed on Moody Radio in years past and whom you had at Dallas Theological Seminary, as did I, have opposed Christians using alcohol on the basis of the strong drink argument. They would not see abstinence from alcohol as simply some rule or, for that matter, even a gray area, but rather a moral dictate of Scripture. This position, once it's understood, is very difficult to argue against. Apart from using wine to purify water as a medicine for the stomach or as an antiseptic on wounds or to be given as an act of mercy to a dying man, these men oppose the use of alcohol as a moral violation of Scripture. And I attach a couple of articles, one by Dr. Geisler and one by Dr. Robert Stein that actually appeared in Christianity Today of all magazines, which is now very moderate, uh, in 1975 of June called Wine Drinking in the New Testament. It kind of walks through the whole strong drink argument. If you're not familiar with that, you can go to my website at searchthescriptures.org and read that. Let me finish the letter. I know times are changing, but it's not always wise to change with those times. Between the two Moody graduates on our staff here at Community Bible Church and the large number of students we have sent to Moody, not to mention a number of Moody students who have done summer internships in our church, we know from firsthand testimony that a problem already exists in the student body of Moody, as in many other evangelical colleges, concerning the abuse of alcohol. Maybe it is larger than you really understand. In either case, we believe your new policy will open the door to encourage further abuse. It is the encouragement many students need with your new policy. Add to all this, God has called leaders in the church, which your institution is attempting to develop to a higher uh, Attempting to develop, he's called them to a higher standard. And certainly, as those called to a higher standard to serve as leaders, we will be judged by a stricter standard. James 3, Hebrews 13. Our church is blessed of God to be able to support and partner on a monthly basis, basis with several hundred missionaries. Every single missionary we support, representing a broad spectrum of evangelical mission agencies, restrict their missionaries from using alcohol and tobacco. No one mentions gambling. That seems to be a given. To have your staff and faculty model, quote-unquote, moderation to the student body 
only to be later told when applying to a mission agency in the vast majority of local churches that they are to abstain is to send a confusing message. Um, Anyway, that's all I'm going to read, but that's the thrust of what I wrote to the president of Moody Bible Institute. I reminded him of Wheaton College that made a similar decision over a decade ago, and they've only drifted uh, further away from their own roots and from orthodoxy. So let's call alcoholism what God calls it. Let's call it drunkardness. Uh, Let's not call a man an alcoholic. Let's call him a drunkard because that's really what he is and that's what it is. It's a sin. And let's remove it out of the mindset of sickness and put it into the mindset where God places it, namely sin. And we need to do this in the church today. Uh, and we need to hold the standard high, and we need to hold the hand of grace out. But listen, if you if you lower the standard, then you then you really cannot preach grace in the fullest sense. Uh, the function of the law is as a tutor, as a school teacher, to lead people to faith in Christ. And when you hold God's law up then people see its wisdom and they see their need uh, for for a Savior. Mm. All right. I'd add that uh, if people didn't get an opportunity to uh, digest all of that, that we have that letter and all the attachments online at okay. wagp.net. Good. Just, just go to our, um, uh, what is the category there? I've got to go back to it real quick. Uh, public file there. Public and, uh, file. Okay. WAGP.net. You can read my letter to the Moody Bible Institute. Rick also wrote a letter as the general manager of the station and the two attachments. Are they there as well? They you are. say uh, wine drinking in the New Testament. Robert yeah. Stein, a graduate of Princeton Seminary in the 70s. He's now an elderly man still teaching at Southern Seminary in Louisville, Kentucky. And I hope to actually meet with him very soon here. And, uh, and Dr. Norman Geisler, former professor at Dallas Theological Seminary, now the president of a, a seminary in North Carolina, um, also wrote an excellent article in Bibliotheca Sacra, which is uh, the oldest Christian quarterly in the United States, a very uh, solid evangelical scholarly magazine that I've subscribed to for the last uh, 30 years. And uh, it's well done, and he wrote just a superb article on wine drinking in the New Testament as well. You know, you so, mentioned uh, Christianity Today has become more moderate in, over the last few years, but it's interesting. A couple of issues ago, they actually had another article that uh, condemned uh, the use of alcohol. Glad to hear that. Yeah, yeah. Uh, unfortunately, that uh, they have. They drifted from their roots. Christianity Today was started by Dr. Carl Henry. Uh, he and Billy Graham got the idea that we needed a magazine, a Time magazine, so to speak, with a Christian flair and emphasis on it. And so Carl Henry, uh, who I had the privilege to meet when he was in his 80s, uh, was a great evangelical scholar of the 20th century. Uh, When I was at Dallas Seminary in the 80s, uh, Dr. Geisler saw the drift of... uh, of Christianity Today, and he would often write uh, articles under pseudonyms. It was the only way he could get them published as letters to the editor, but they've really drifted as an organization, which is unfortunate, Um, and and they've sent a a confusing message. So now they don't represent just conservative evangelicalism. They do in some of their articles, but they also represent a more moderate flavor of Christianity that is really departed from uh, the historical roots of the church. All right, we've got a live caller all the way from San Antonio, Texas. Uh, are you there, caller? Hello, Dr. Brogy. Yes, good morning. How can we help? I have two questions about Bible translation into English. Okay. 
Uh, the first question is, uh, several years ago I heard a, a pastor who definitely believes the Bible. Um, he said that in the Christmas story, the verse where it says there's no, there was no room found for them in the inn, he said that word for inn uh, in the Hebrew can also mean heart. So is that correct? And if so, is there an English translation that that conveys that? And then the second question okay. is, uh, I'm, I keep thinking that I want to get an amplified Bible to uh, be able to compare verses. Do you think that would be helpful, or do you think it would be more confusing? Well, um, let, let me respond first to your first question. And, uh, and then I'll come to your, your, your second question. Um, you know, uh, the idea that there's a Hebrew word uh, for in that r- refers to heart. Well, again, you know, one of the basic rules of, of interpretation is you interpret the text in its historical grammatical context. And so we read in Luke 2 and verse 7, and she gave birth to her firstborn son, and she wrapped him in clothes and laid him in a manger because there was no room for them in the inn. Um, the word inn is a Greek word that means in, and that's, that's what it means. It doesn't mean anything else. It, it means in. And so if someone were to say, well, there's a Hebrew word for a hotel that can also, you know, refer to one's heart. Well, number one, God didn't inspire Matthew's gospel in Hebrew. He inspired it in Greek. And he used a particular word that uh, refers specifically to an inn. It's uh, katalumate, and um, that's what it refers to in every instance, both in and outside of the New Testament. So to um, impose some hidden meaning that no one else has seen, and I say no one else has seen it because um, I have uh, 20... English translations of the Bible. There are over 200, um, which we're really blessed as English speaking people to have so many different translations. And of course, some are better than, than others, but there is over, you know, 20 major English translations that the American church uses and not one of them would translate it heart or anything like that. It it refers to a, a building, a place where people stayed and had a chance like a modern day hotel, so to speak, uh, where they would spend the night. Uh, not always the best places to stay in in the first century, and so a need, especially for the church, to show hospitality, because many times these inns were dirty or sometimes immoral and so forth. But um, God's Word is clear on it. Now, to get to your second question in terms of the Amplified Bible, the Amplified Bible, when it was uh, completed, is uh, a paraphrase translation. There are different kinds of you know, translations. There's what we would call a a dynamic equivalent, where instead of doing a word-for-word translation, as best one can do that from the original language into the receptor language. And I say as best because sometimes word order in foreign languages is very different, say, from word structure in English. Like in Greek, sometimes instead of having a subject, verb, object, as typically in English, Sometimes you can have as the very first word of the sentence, the verb. 
So if you did literally a word for word, it just wouldn't make sense. So you have to um, take into account the grammar, not just of the original language, but the receptor language when you go from Greek or Hebrew or Aramaic, where we put it, say, in our English tongue. Now, there are other languages of the world, like the Slavic languages of the world, Russian, Ukrainian, and so forth, Romanian and Moldavian, and those languages of the world, they actually have as their root Greek. And so they structure themselves in a very similar way. And so when, uh, when I was just in the Ukraine last week and I was uh, teaching Bible college seminaries and presidents from across the Ukraine, it was really a pleasure because, um, you know, I had a Greek New Testament in front of me and they had their Russian Bibles and it's structured so much the same. Uh, you didn't have to go into a lot of uh, explanation because they understood uh, as a case language how, how it functioned. Uh, so there's dynamic equivalents that are kind of thought-for-thought thought translations, and then there's what we call a fluid equivalent or formal equivalent, depending on who you're reading and the term that's used, and that's more of a word-for-word word translation. Um, and again, they're on different levels of that. Probably, you know, the more precise formal equivalents would be like the King James or the New American Standard or the ESV. Uh, the most literal would be the, the New American Standard. The King James would be like right next to it, the ESV next. You move down the continuum towards a, in the far end of the continuum is the Amplified Bible, the Living Bible, the Good News Bible, what you call a paraphrase. But moving in that direction, then you'd have the NIV, which is kind of a combination of a formal equivalent with a dynamic equivalent. So uh, again, when you start paraphrasing, you lose uh, some of the fine uh, preciseness of what God has said. When you get all the way down to a um, paraphrase translation, what you're doing more often than not is you're writing a commentary on the Bible. And so the man who developed the uh, living Bible in the 1970s, he did that because he'd come home at nine and he'd try to read his children the Bible And he would end up paraphrasing a lot of what was being said. And so he took a book of the New Testament. He said, well, I'm just going to kind of go through the whole book and I'll paraphrase the whole thing for them so they can understand it. And he started reading the paraphrase uh, translation he had created in the Sunday school class he taught. And and the people said, well, why don't you do the whole New Testament? And he did. And, of course, he knew no Greek or Hebrew or Aramaic. He had no training at all. Um, but he paraphrased it. And in some places he did a really good job. And in some places he didn't do so good a job. Um, because without a knowledge of the original language, you might interpret it incorrectly. Uh, because that's really what he did. He created a commentary. Now, there are some verses that, you know, it's hard to paraphrase or say it any differently than it just reads literally. Um, But then there are other verses, well, what does this refer to? And you have to make an interpretive decision. And it may be right or it may be not so right. So um, a paraphrase translation like the Amplified Bible or the Good News for Modern Man, who that fellow who did that translation, he didn't even believe in the bodily resurrection. So number one, if a man doesn't believe in the bodily resurrection of Christ, I remember meeting him when I was a campus pastor at Duke University and he came and lectured there and I thought, I went just out of curiosity because I had seen a good news translation of the Bible, good news for modern man as it was originally packaged. And 
Um, and I thought, here's the guy who translated it, and he doesn't believe that Jesus literally was raised from the dead. So is he born again? No. You must believe in your heart that Jesus is Lord and God raised him from the dead in order to be saved. So if you're not born again, then you're not regenerated by the Spirit of God, and you lack a lot of insight in a new Christian who has been born again would have more insight to the scriptures than a guy with five PhDs behind his name who's never met Christ as his personal savior. So, you know, there are some translations that, you know, the people who are behind them are not sound theologically um, to start. And you should question that. Or they have certain presuppositions they begin with. So, for instance, Eugene Peterson, who wrote the paraphrased translation called The Message, which surprisingly Navigator Press, which is a very conservative organization, they put out. Uh, I, I think they put it out without really reading it carefully. And they assumed that he was some Greek and Hebrew scholar as he made himself out to be, only to find out later he was not the Hebrew Greek scholar that he made himself out to be. Um, but he had some presuppositions that are reflected in his translation. For instance, I read earlier today when someone asked the question about drunkenness, 1 Corinthians chapter 6. Read 1 Corinthians 6, 9 through 11 in the message, and you won't find any message of homo- no mention of homosexuality. <laughs> what happened to that sin? He decided to leave it out. Um, he's egalitarian in his view of women. Uh, so he recognizes that men and women are equal, Uh, in their stature before God. That's a good thing. I recognize that. But he does not recognize that they're complementary in their roles that they play. And so in a number of passages, especially those that deal with the role of men and women in the church, he has come up with his own little twist and spin, uh, which is not healthy. So um, some, some paraphrased translations have done a great disservice to the body of Christ instead of being really a great help to the body of Christ. Amplified Bible is not a bad one. Um, and sometimes, again, you know, you can read one of these paraphrased translations if you're struggling with a paragraph of Scripture and, again, take it for what it's worth. It's a commentary. And you might say, well, I see that or I'm not sure I agree with that. Um much better to have just a literal translation and to struggle with the text and cry out to God for wisdom and, and um, look at uh, parallel passages where the scripture interprets the scripture for you and try to understand it with that approach. That's a little more work, but uh, I think you will in the end come with a more accurate understanding of what God actually said. Anyway, the hour is gone again. It goes by fast and I'm glad you could be with us today and I know a number of questions we haven't gotten to, but God willing, there's another Bible line on another Tuesday, and we'll do our best to address those questions as they come. Have a great day as you walk with Jesus Christ. 